What lessons can Americans learn about the history of war? I'll talk about it on episode 766 of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. If you want to support the show, click on that super thanks button under the video if you're watching on YouTube. Don't forget to comment on the video on YouTube. It helps the algorithm. Also, you can support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. Also, click on the shop tab while you're there. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And you, of course, can go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. It's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, where I do teach. Of course, I've got my own educational website, McClanahan Academy, as well. So lots of great ways to support the show financially. But again, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Send me those show requests. Share it around on social media. Do everything you can to spread the word and get people thinking locally and acting locally. All right, well, let's talk about the topic, and it is war. Now, um, in the dust-up between Michael Anton and uh, the old right, he recently he published a piece at American Greatness calling out a blogger named Z-Man. Now, I talked about this on the show and Paul Gottfried's response. And Z-Man always publishes an interesting blog, always has interesting things to say. And one thing he did recently was on war. Now, this is a very important topic, and people don't often realize it, but when you look at the structure of the American government, the federal government, the central authority, had a charge in foreign policy. And that's because the founding generation thought that the states were essentially incapable of doing that on their own, meaning that you didn't want to have 13 different foreign policies. So to have one collective foreign policy, one voice when it came to the union of the states, when we were dealing with the British or the French or the Spanish or whoever. And, of course, the president is commander-in-chief of the armed services when they're called into service, and also he is essentially chief diplomat. He is the lead negotiator for the United States. It's one of his most important roles. In fact, you could say it's his, it is his most important role. So foreign policy was under the purview of the general government, the central authority. The other thing, of course, is commerce, international commerce. Remember, interstate commerce, the general government can control that. It has control over interstate commerce, not to regulate it in the way that the modern uh, Democrats and Republicans think, but to ensure that it it maintained a free trade zone. But essentially, international commerce was under the purview of the general government. And this was, again, because of the experience of the American colonialists, where you had the parliament and the king running those two things, international trade and defense. So that federal structure, where you had a central authority that had these limited objectives, and then all the domestic concerns were controlled by the states, was something they had lived under for a very long period of time. In fact, again, Jack Green does a very good job of this in all of his books on the American War for Independence. Now, I say all that because war then becomes, and diplomacy becomes, a very important part of our discussion about the central government. And oftentimes, we get bogged down in debates and 
congressional debates when it comes to election time or the presidential debates and what this congressman is going to do about uh, this domestic policy, what this congressman is going to do about this domestic policy, and what the president is going to do about this domestic policy. These are all irrelevant questions at the end of the day because the Congress really doesn't have any control over any of those things. But foreign policy, of course, was one of them. And of course, a senator should be questioned on what they think about various appointments. But one of the things the Senate does have a check on is diplomats and treaties. They get to check the president's power of appointment and they get to have a concurrent voice in treaties. So again, foreign policy is important. But we don't ask those questions because most Americans are unaware of this. They think the Congress is there to ensure that we have fair rent and regulate our gas stoves and ensure that we have unemployment compensation and these kind of things. Well, that's not the job of the Congress. These were things that were left to the states, explicitly left to the states, not only by the 10th Amendment and the 9th Amendment, but also by the ratification debates who said over and over again, the proponents of the Constitution that the general government should not get involved in these kinds of issues. They didn't have the closeness to the people that your state legislatures would have, and plus they didn't have the power. So when Ron Paul ran for president, this is, this is important, and he focused on foreign policy, he was doing exactly what the charge of the president should be. And of course, you know, he had this very famous exchange between Rudy Giuliani and Ron Paul, where Rudy got all kinds of, oh, people clap for Rudy, the, the man who is now, uh, you know, uh, suspiciously criminal at times. But anyways, um, Giuliani, because he was aggressive in foreign policy, and Ron Paul said, this is, this is terrible, this is a bad idea. Ron Paul was always correct that domestic policy flows from foreign policy. If you have a bad foreign policy, you're going to have a bad domestic policy, and that's because when you expand foreign policy and you expand the purview of the general government in foreign policy, and you get the general government doing things that are, uh, in, in many ways, blatantly unconstitutional. Undeclared wars, uh, treaties, executive agreements instead of treaties. When you do these kind of things, you open the door for expansive powers of the general government in other ways. And when you spend a lot of money on foreign policy, you're going to naturally have to have the revenue for it, which leads to central banking and higher taxes. So all of these things work together. You have to understand foreign policy. If we have a bad foreign policy, we'll have a bad domestic policy. It's something he was always correct about. And when you look at the founding generation, you look at you know, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, and then even after that, going into the up to the Lincoln administration, it didn't matter if you were talking about a Federalist, a Republican, a Democrat, or a Whig. And those are the parties we had, parties, factions essentially, but parties that we had in this period of time. All of them had a generally restrained foreign policy. There are some exceptions. James K. Polk is one of them. But generally, they had a restrained foreign policy. And they would refer back to it in their inaugural addresses or their annual messages. It didn't matter if you're talking about Zachary Taylor, Millard Fillmore, uh, Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan. It didn't matter. Martin Van Buren, uh, I mean, Andrew Jackson, John Quincy Adams, all of these people generally believed in a restrained foreign policy based on the Washingtonian and Jeffersonian position of avoiding entangling alliances. This is uh, something that Jefferson said, but avoiding that prospect of getting involved in these foreign alliances and foreign wars for foreign benefit. We weren't going to do it. We were going to stay out of it. Now you can say, what about the Monroe Doctrine? Well, 
The Monroe Doctrine was not getting... Part of the Monroe Doctrine that people miss was that Monroe, and of course John Quincy Adams who wrote it, said the United States would stay out of European wars for European benefit. We're going to stay on our side of the world, you stay on your side of the world, and we'll all be good, right? So that, that doctrine was going to be enforced by the British. The British Navy did it. The United States Navy didn't do it, but the British Navy did it. So the fact is, we were staying out of Europe, and they were staying out of the Western Hemisphere, and that made everything peaceful. Peace provides stability for a central government. We know over and over again, when you start getting involved in a massive amount of wars, and we're seeing, we've got war drums in China right now with Taiwan. We've got war drums in, the, in North and South Korea. We've got, of course, major war drums in Europe. And the, it seems like the United States... At least the establishment, Democrats and Republicans, are trying to rush the United States headlong into a war in Europe. We know the British now have supplied some of their battle tanks to the Ukrainians. We have become the Ukrainian army. It's a proxy war. This is something that Richard Nixon, for all the problems I have with Richard, Richard Nixon, the Nixon doctrine was to avoid proxy wars. But that's exactly what we're doing now in the 21st century with Ukraine and Russia. And you have to question whether there could have been a different kind of directive here from the general government that would have avoided potential World War III and a nuclear conflict. I mean, because that's what's on the table. If the Russians get desperate, they could do something like that. Even a small-scale nuclear conflict would be devastating if they were to launch nukes into the Ukraine or somewhere else into Europe, because that would, that would incite a response. Now, we know that there have been some things that are going on, for example, when you know we had missiles hit Poland, that that was actually the Ukraine that did it. We know this comes out. So you have to be very careful about this and what's going on. There's a lot of unknowns. But I want to get to this piece by Z-Man because he brings up War Lessons, right? That's actually the title of the piece is War Lessons. And this was uh, published on uh, January 11th. And he says, most likely the first war in human history was one group of guys rushing at another group of guys, swinging fists and anything they could use as a club. It did not take long before a man decided that this was a good idea. It was a good idea to use his hunting weapons to ward off these attacks or complement these attacks. After all, if a gang of men with spears could take down a large animal, the same tactic could work on humans. From there, the arms race was on among the human species. Now, let me... I'll read a couple more paragraphs, and I'm going to say something about early war. The club was probably the first weapon of war. The spear would be the first tool converted for use in war. The shield was the first tool of war created specifically for use in combat against other men. Unlike the club, the shield was not just lying around waiting for a man to use it in a fight. Unlike the spear, the shield was not something used for hunting. The shield was a practical response to men using their spears to poke at you in a fight. It was the dawn of the arms industry. He says, We have no way of knowing if any of this is true. The first men were not big on writing stuff down, so we are left to speculate. Maybe the crazies are right and people are naturally peaceful until a weapon is introduced. Some guy brought his spear to the clan meeting, and this caused the clans to break out into warfare. Perhaps humans were vegetarians, eating what they could find until one guy picked up a stick and then immediately decided to start beating people with it. Now, let me comment on early war, war before civilization, because that's what he's talking about here. There's actually a book written on this. It's by a guy named Lawrence Keeley, and it's based on archaeological evidence and whatever records we can find about human beings before they started writing stuff down. And what we find through this is that man was pretty violent 
in the period of time before civilization. This thing, you know, maybe the crazies are right. No, they're not right. Man was violent. We, we did not have people singing, sitting around the campfire holding hands and singing Kumbaya. They were attacking each other quite frequently and for long, sustained periods of time. And it wasn't just about resources or women, which was what many people thought. It was just because they wanted to do it. Civilization has made man less violent, less inclined to violence, which is why civilization is so important. But regardless, man was clubbing each other, and the club could be used for close quarter hunting. I mean, you can use it to uh, bludgeon the head of an animal to kill it. I mean, you can do that. And we know that man, of course, did forage, but they were eating a lot of meat. And we know it because what we found in their corpolite, right? Their fecal material and what you can find. Also, they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff like downing whole snakes and things like that. I mean, there are some really strange things going on. But regardless, um, by the way, when the snakes were probably alive too. Uh, regardless, we've got um, the, the evidence that shows that man was naturally inclined to violence. And so if civilization was to break down, this is what you would see. You would see man naturally inclined to a violent state. And so when you have all these dystopian shows where it's a mess, that's probably pretty accurate in what it would be like. I mean, uh, without any type of civilization or restraining uh, factor, uh, you would have man doing whatever they wanted. And that would involve a lot of stuff that we would call despicable in a state of civilization. But... Uh, without those, again, without the laws or the restraining factors, which could be religion, it could be simple respect, uh, philosophical respect for other people, whatever it is, we're left to the record which shows that man was pretty nasty when there was no civilization. So he says, putting that aside, the history of war has been one side finding new ways to get around opposing defenses, while the other side finds new ways to block or reduce the weapons the other side is using. We are seeing this in the Ukraine, as the Russians work through the puzzle that is the Ukrainian defense network. For close to a decade, the United States worked with Ukraine on their tactics, defenses, and training. The Ukrainians were as ready as they could be for this war. One of the first problems the Russians faced was the well-designed Ukrainian air defense system. This was a carryover from the Soviet days. During the Cold War, the Russians planned to defend themselves against superior American airplanes, so they designed advanced air defense systems. These things are always hotly debated, but the consensus is that the Russians are the best in the world at building surface-to-air missile systems for defense against planes and missiles. Of course, this was the same problem presented by to NATO. The Russians have even better air defense systems than the Ukrainians. They can take out the best aircraft from great distances. This is why the Pentagon was adamantly against imposing a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Losing billion-dollar aircraft on a daily basis is a good way to lose popular support for a proxy war. It's also why there was never any thought about training Ukrainian pilots on the F-35. So again, you're looking at, he calls it out, it is a proxy war. And he's looking at weapons. Right? He's looking at what weapons can do and how weapons can control the way we think about a conflict. This is nuclear deterrence. Uh, Bernard Brody, whose wife Fawn was, of course, a psychological historian, wrote some really stupid stuff. But Bernard Brody was one of the pioneers in this idea of deterrence, nuclear deterrence. You build more weapons, more nuclear weapons, because then the other side won't attack you. Uh, this was the, the philosophical and, and uh, military argument behind it. Deterrence 
was going to uh, more weapons is going to prevent an actual war. You build up your stockpile. You build weapon systems that are more advanced, so people actually don't attack you. And I mean, you could say this about anything throughout any period of time. If you've got superior defenses and the technology for the other side isn't there to attack, they're not going to do it. So you build the best air defense systems. You build the best aircraft. You build the best tanks. You build the best aircraft carriers. You build the best battleships, which we don't use anymore, or naval vessels, destroyers, submarines, uh, advanced naval aircraft. You get involved in technology, whether it's drone technology or lasers or whatever the next hypersonic missiles, whatever the next thing is, you try to stay on the edge of technology so that you are always one step ahead of the enemy and what they're doing so they don't attack you. This is the argument that we've had for continued investment in budgets, military budgets, because you have to stay ahead of the other side or you will get attacked. Now, of course, you've got Biden on a, on a mic saying, well, uh, <laughs> I've got two oceans and, uh, you know, all the that like it's his. Right. This is a strange thing when Biden sits up there and says it's like it's his, like he's king. It was a very strange comment. If you haven't seen this, he's talking with. Uh, the Canadian Prime Minister, and he's mentioning that he's got two oceans. Biden, him, has got two oceans in Canada and Mexico, so he doesn't have to worry about being attacked. He, him, uh, he's the President of the United States representing the Union of the States, not him. This is not his land. This is not his territory. It's He is a servant of the United States and the states of the Union and the people of the states of the Union. That's what he is. He's not a king, but that's the way that he phrased the response to this. It's very strange. This is what these people really think they are. They do think that they are elected monarchs, and they act like it. I mean, it's, it's clear from the rhetoric that they use. But regardless, we do have some natural defenses, but even there, those things can be negated by technology. So Z-Man says, that's the first lesson of war. Outside of asymmetric wars, like America attacking a weak country, manned combat aircraft is becoming obsolete. Surface-to-air missile systems are reaching the stage where they can defeat the best manned aircraft at pennies on the dollar. If you can take out a billion-dollar plane with a million-dollar missile, it is not going to be, take long before the other side stops using the billion-dollar planes to attack you. And this is true, right? If you can do this. And there's a video out there. I don't know. I mean, you have to... be cautious about these things, but it was a Russian aircraft being attacked by a Ukrainian air defense system. It was essentially a, um, a machine gun system. I mean, that's what it was, but of course it, it had a honing on it. So wherever the plane went, this thing fired and eventually shot down the Russian aircraft and the aircraft is doing all it could to avoid it, but it couldn't, I mean, it just couldn't get out of the way. Um, so once you have these kind of systems, well, um, it becomes very dangerous to engage, particularly in you know, close combat with aircraft. He says, that is another lesson of the war. Wars between peers are about economics, not flashy displays of technological prowess. Each side must try to reduce the per-cost unit of destroying the opponent's assets and defending its own assets. Assuming an equal number of assets at the start, the game becomes a contest of efficiency. The side that can run the war most effectively, cost-effectively wins. We're seeing that in Ukraine as the frugal Russians grind down the extravagantly financed Ukrainians. So can they waste, can the Russians waste Ukrainian resources so that at the end of the day, the Russians are still standing on top? 
This is one of the arguments that, you know, why the Russians lost the Cold War, because they couldn't keep up. They bankrupt themselves trying to keep up with the United States in weapons of war. So, I mean, again, economics does come. I mean, we can, we can see this lesson, uh, you know, for example, in the 16th century when the Spanish built the, the Grand Armada and it sank to the bottom of the English Channel and they bankrupt themselves over this. I mean, so they had this glorious set of warships that were defeated by the English and Sir Francis Drake sailing around, you know, faster, more nimble ships. And, and of course, weather factored in too, but they sank to the bottom of the English Channel. So this is, you know, this is something that you learn throughout studying warfare. He says, that brings up another lesson of this war. The vaunted American military-industrial complex is being revealed to be a bigger fraud than suspected. Last summer, Alex Vershin pointed out the problems in the West, Western military-industrial capacity versus that of the Russians. He concluded that the West simply lacked the industrial capacity to wage this war. In December, Brian Berlichick did the same did a similar post on this topic, which had been covered in the Washington Post and Financial Times. The United States has spent roughly a trillion dollars per year on weapons, but there is not enough stock to last a year in a real war. Even if there is a shift toward ramping up production, it will take years to match the Russians and Chinese. In some cases, the ability to make the stuff has been lost. Once the contract with the military was fulfilled, the men and facilities to make the stuff was repurposed. For those cases, it means starting production from scratch. So this, again, is an interesting point. I think he's correct about this. When you look at the Spanish example, they built these ships. They couldn't replace them. They didn't have the capacity, the money to do it. So the less expensive English vessels with better tactics were better than the more expensive Spanish Armada, which looked great, had a lot of cannons, but they couldn't. once they were gone, they were gone. So if you knock out all the F-35s and you take out all the high-tech weaponry the United States has, et cetera, et cetera, they can't replace it. It's gone. So what what Z-Man essentially is talking about here is how do you win a war in the modern age using low-intensity conflict tactics, which is what you've seen essentially in Afghanistan and the United States left and what you saw in the Middle East. It was low-intensity conflict. This is what, again, military strategists and theorists have started talking about. You have a massive power. Even when he talks about the United States using these things on less technologically advanced opponents, you're going you're gonna to bulldoze them. You're going to buzzsaw them down for a little while. But if they are resilient and they use low-intensity tactics, eventually the side with all the money and all the resources leaves. It's a, it's a, it's a Pyrrhic war. I mean, this is what, you know, or, and, and um, you know, this is what people have talked about for years. It actually is worse than anyone is letting on. The Pentagon refuses to consider supplying Ukraine with Abrams tanks. One reason is it takes a year to train a crew to competently operate the thing. The main reason, however, is that these tanks are extremely fragile outside of optimum environments. Their size and and complexity require a massive supply chain to keep the the things running. This is great for the contractors, but it's an enormous liability for an army at war. Now, here's the other thing about the Abrams tanks. We don't make new Abrams tanks. We repurpose Abrams tanks. They get refitted. They go back in. Uh, we don't build new ones. We're using the same tanks that had been there for 30 and 40 years. So when you lose one, it's gone. That's the sad thing about this. We don't want to put them into the Ukraine because it's going to create a situation where they can't replace that tank if the Ukrainians blow it up. So they got to use their own tanks. 
it's not just the technology and getting the crew to do it. It's it's the cost of replacing this. You can't do it in the United States. We don't do this anymore. They're they're trucked or put on a train to a facility where they're repurposed all the time, refurbished and repurposed. This is what we do with the Abrams tanks. Probably the biggest lesson thus far is that drones are changing the battlefield in ways no one anticipated. Faced with massive defense works, the Russians were reduced to using their artillery advantage to pound the Ukrainians. Cheap drone technology has allowed them to effectively target enemy positions and selectively hunt for opposing machines using inexpensive weapons. The cheap drone is not only a weapon on the battlefield, it is a force multiplier. So again, artillery, 1940s. We're back to that. Artillery. Sometimes the the basic weapons of war, and it is manned combat, are the things that are going to win you a war. Now, are the Russians going to win? I don't know. The United States essentially has decided it's going all in and spending all it can to help prop up the Ukrainian defenses. Uh, but, I mean, what's going to happen? Who knows? And the Russians are, I mean, we get reports on both sides. I have no idea what's going to work out here in the Ukraine. And if the United States is actually going to eventually fully get involved or any Western power, but we know the British are sending tanks. So, I mean, we'll see. This is getting pretty nasty uh, in terms of, you know, potential for a disaster. Of course, the biggest lesson in, the, in that fighting is in your, is your backyard is much easier than fighting across the sea. The Russians have short, tight supply lines because Ukraine is right on her border. The Ukrainians rely on American money and material to have supply lines stretched thin. Those donated tanks and artillery pieces have to be shipped to Poland to be repaired. Now, the lesson of this war is that supply chain is an, as important as the weapons and ammunition it supplies. Okay, so, I mean, this is something people have known about, again, since uh, you know, early modern period. I mean, supply lines, and there's, a, there's actually a mathematical equation for all of this. You've had strategists and tacticians talk about these things forever. If you overrun your supply, you're not going to be able to continue the fight in a modern war. You've got to supply your troops. You have to have a supply line that's uh, stable and functioning. And if you don't have that, you're in real trouble. So it could be fuel, it could be ammunition, it could be food, it could be water, it could be any of these things. You've got to have this stuff in a modern war. You've got to be able to, to uh, resupply your, your soldiers, your equipment, to get them working. If you have parts, something breaks, you got to have those things. So all of this is very important in a modern warfare environment. And he is right about you know proximity and what you can do and how you can get these things there. And we learned all these lessons beginning, you know, again, early on, hundreds of years ago, about supply lines and other things. And what a, an enemy has to do if they break the supply line, then they have to live on the land where they go. And, of course, Napoleon did this and... Uh, you know, you start seeing these things happening. But um, studying warfare is very interesting from this kind of perspective, a top-down strategy, tactics, uh, and, and how, uh, how places engage in these conflicts. He concludes by saying, whether anyone in the West is learning anything from this is hard to know. But most likely the corruption is so thick that none of this is making sense to them. I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I, these people that are involved in this, they study this stuff. I mean, gosh, you know, if you take a military strategy course in graduate school, you study this stuff. There are you know, books and books and books written about these things. They know. They know what's going on. The, the, the people that are in charge of this aren't stupid. They might, they might have hubris and think that it's not going to happen to them, but they can overcome these things with technology or whatever it is. 
but they know that these limitations were there. Again, any first-year graduate student taking a reading seminar in military strategy would learn this stuff. So if you study enough military history, just read books on these topics, on World War I, World War II, the Napoleonic Wars, uh, any of these things. The, the uh, American War for Southern Independence, the American War for Independence. I mean, you read any of these things. Uh, you read any of these books on this, you find out that all this stuff has been covered before. If you're a military historian, or at least a military history buff, you know these things. So the people in charge know this stuff. And I think he's right about, well, this is why the United States hasn't done X, Y, and Z, because they know that it will be a disaster financially and, of course, with supply and other diplomatically and other things too. Making billion-dollar jet fighters is much more fun and profitable than producing cheap drone technology or building better field artillery. If these lessons will be learned at all, it will be in a colossal failure in the Pacific. That seems to be where the military-industrial complex is determined to meet its fate. Uh, I mean, again, it's not necessarily clear what the United States has in terms of technology and what it can use and what it has in reserve or what it's working on because we haven't deployed it in the Ukraine. I think that last conclusion is a little bit out there. But we do know there are some cracks in the military. And for all the problems I have with Michael Anton in terms of philosophy, he's done a pretty good job pointing out how, how um, inept the United States Navy actually is and just driving their own ships. They crash them. They have accidents. They do things all, all the time. Because we've got some real problems with training and, of course, the quality of people we can get in our United States military at this particular time. So um, it's, we know recruiting is down. We can't get people to fill the Army. We're, we're, I mean, the United States Army is having to go out and, and essentially drag up people they never would have considered before because nobody wants to go fight in a foreign war. And n nobody really believes in this expansive American foreign policy. Is becoming a real liability. So I like this piece because it does point out how important the military is when it comes to budgets and it comes to you know, diplomacy and it has a trickle-down effect. Whatever the United States done, does in terms of foreign policy is going to have a dramatic effect on its domestic policy and domestic spending. And so this piece for that reason alone was valuable and it's why I want to talk about it. All right. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.